So the other day I was listening to an old recording of a Martin Luther King Jr. speech. And in it he tells this story. It was late one night. He just got home from a meeting. It was in Montgomery, Alabama, 1956. And his wife had already gone to bed, so he tried to sneak in quietly and go to bed next to her. But just as he got into bed, uh, the phone rang. So he, he gets up quickly so as to not wake up his wife, and he picks up the phone, and the voice on the other hand and says, hateful things, terrible things. And then ends with, if you aren't out of town in three days, I'm going to kill you and blow up your house. Now, if you know anything about MLK's life, this was not the first time this had happened. This was not anything new. He had heard these things before, but for some reason that night it got to him. He tried to go back to bed, but he just laid there and rolled back and forth and stared at the ceiling. And finally he decided he was going to get up and fix himself a cup of coffee. So he goes and he says it was about midnight and he goes to the kitchen table and he fixes himself a cup of coffee. And there he just starts searching his mind, starts thinking. And he said he sat there and he thought about all the philosophy and theology he had studied, about the answers he had about why sin exists in, his, in this world and why things are so broken. But he said the answers weren't there. And then he sat there and thought about his baby. His, his daughter was only one month old at the time and, and how she was just the, the joy of his life, how he would go into his, her room and just to watch her smile. And he thought about how she might be taken from him. And then he thought about his beautiful wife sleeping in the other room and how she might be taken from him or he might be taken from her. And, and he said at that moment he just lost it. He just broke down right over his cup of coffee. And he started to pray. He said he prayed out loud, Lord, I'm down here trying to do what's right. I think I'm right. I think the cause that we represent is right, but Lord, I confess that I am weak now. I am faltering. I'm losing my courage. And I know you're real. But right now, I'm so weak. I'm so afraid. And I don't think I've ever heard you say my name. I need to hear your voice. I need to hear you say my name. And at that point in the recording, his voice breaks and I heard that, and it just wrecked me. Maybe it's just me, but I, I felt that. I've been there. I've prayed that. In my 20s, I went through a phase where I was just haunted by doubts, haunted by doubts. It's what you call today um, deconstruction. Like, I didn't even know what I believed or whether I even believed that God was real anymore. And during that time, I always tried to think my way out of it, tried to reason my way out of it. And every time I went through the process, I always came back to one thing. Easter, the resurrection of Jesus, that if the man, Jesus of Nazareth, actually rose from the dead, then he is who he says he is. Then I can trust what the scriptures say about him. Then I can trust that my life, my fears, all the unknowns, I can trust him with those. That if the resurrection happened, then I can rest in him. And I knew this to be true. And like MLK, I've studied 
philosophy and theology and I knew the historical and the theological and the prophetic reasons to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And in my mind, I think all of those are true. They're rationally true. I have really good reasons to believe that Jesus rose from the dead, but like Martin Luther King, in the moments of darkness, in the moments of my deepest doubts, when those doubts would come after me, for some reason, knowing all the facts didn't calm my fears, didn't answer all my questions, didn't ease my doubts, that my heart needed something more to hear from God. So it's Easter morning. Happy Easter, by the way. Uh, I hope you're safe. I hope you're well. And uh, if you're unable to gather with us this morning, I hope you still have the opportunity to get all pastelled up and, and sing Christ the Lord is Risen today and eat a really good meal with some people that you love. But more importantly, I hope your day is filled with wonder and joy and worship of our resurrected King. This is truly the best day of the year. This Easter message, though, is for those whose hearts need something more. In past Easter messages, I've spent um, a lot of time pointing to the reasons, the intellectual and theological and historical reasons to believe in the resurrection. And there are many, and this is so important, and I don't want to in any way undermine those details. Um, it is true that Jesus rose from the dead. It really happened, and our world has been changed forever. If you are still struggling with whether or not Jesus literally rose from the dead, I would encourage you to check out Lee Strobel's The Case for Easter. You can pick it up on Amazon for $2.99, less than you'd spend at Starbucks. Well worth it. If you have Amazon Prime, it'll probably be there tomorrow. But this morning, that's not what I want to talk about. This morning, I want to speak to those of you whose hearts need something more. And maybe you know the rational facts. Maybe you know that Jesus rose from the dead, but it's not enough to convince your heart. So today, I want to look at a text that does just that. It's John chapter 20. John chapter 20, starting in verse 1. Um, we'll pick it up, the story of the resurrection. So John, let me set the stage here. John, who's the author of this, he is one of the early disciples of Jesus, an eyewitness of his entire life. So the first time we meet John, Jesus walks up to him and his brothers and says, follow me. And John and his brothers, they literally leave everything. They're fishermen. They leave their nets, their boats, their dad, and they follow Jesus. And he's then from that point on an eyewitness to almost every moment of the three years of Jesus' ministry on earth. Like he's there when Jesus raises the dead girl, when he feeds the 5,000, when he's walking on the water at the Garden of Gethsemane, even on the cross. John saw it all firsthand. In the Gospel of John, we get this, this visceral picture of what he saw and experienced and touched and felt as he walked along. And in the first 17 chapters, John gives us a picture of a man who walks in a power, an authority, a wholeness that this world has never seen. Like whatever you may think, it is clear what John thinks. John has no question in his mind, Jesus is the very Son of God. He speaks and the wind and waves obey. He speaks and the forces of evil beg for mercy. He speaks, says, pick up your mat and walk to a, a paralytic. And he walks. He speaks, says, come out. And Lazarus, the dead man, walks out of his grave. For 17 chapters, we, we witness this. And then come chapters 18 and 19. Thursday, he is betrayed, arrested, falsely accused, beaten. Friday, he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, 
was buried. Saturday, his body lay in the ground and his disciples hid in fear. Which brings us to Sunday. John chapter 20, starting in verse 1, reads like this. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. Now, we only know a little bit about Mary Magdalene. There's a story in Luke chapter 7 about a sinful woman. A sinful woman shows up. There's this big party that Jesus is at, this big feast held by a guy named a Pharisee, a religiously important, powerful man, wealthy man. Out of nowhere, this woman comes in, and she's described as a sinful woman. We don't exactly know what that means, but we kind of know what that means, and it's not pretty. Whatever the details are, her very presence is offensive to these re wealthy, religious, important men, and they are just completely annoyed at her. But somehow, she pushes past that, comes up to Jesus, drops to her knees, and starts weeping. And then with her tears, she washes his feet. And with her hair, she dries them. And the other men in the room are sitting there thinking, I can't believe that Jesus would let this woman touch him. And Jesus, knowing what they're thinking, says to the host, Simon, Simon, let's say two men owed a banker a bunch of money. One guy owed him like 50000 and the other owed 500 and then the banker, let both of them just said, hey, your debt is free. You no longer owe it to me. Which of the two men would, would love the banker more? And Simon says, well, I, I guess the one who owed him more. And he says, yeah, you're right. See this woman? This woman you've been judging and despising? I tell you that her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. And then Jesus looks at this woman and says, your sins are forgiven, go in peace. Now, we don't know that that woman, that sinful woman, we don't know who that woman is, but in the very next chapter, we get to introduce to the women who follow Jesus, who come along and, with the disciples and go along on his ministry. And who's the very first person on the short list of women who are part of Jesus' ministry team? A woman named Mary called Magdalene from whom seven demons had come out. So in Hebrew, the number seven often means perfection or completion. So in this context, it, it almost certainly means that this Mary called Magdalene had seven demons come out of her. It means she was perfectly or completely demon-possessed. You might say she was entirely controlled by demons. And there's an ancient tradition linking this Mary to the sinful woman in the previous chapter. And we can't say that for sure, but what we can say about Mary Magdalene is that she had a very, very dark past. Nobody wants to be friends with a woman who had seven demons in her. Nobody wants to hire that woman. Nobody wants to marry that woman. She is damaged goods. She's broken, unwanted. But Jesus says, I pick her. I want her. I want her on my ministry team. So the first thing we know about Mary is that she had a very dark past. And the second thing we can say for sure about Mary is that she loved Jesus. So when Jesus gets crucified, all the men go running to hide. And where does she go? She goes running to the tomb. Dead or alive, she loved him. She didn't care what others thought. She didn't care what happened to her. She didn't care about anything except Jesus. 
So when she gets to the tomb in John chapter 20, and the stone's been moved, she's about to lose her mind. Verse 2 reads like this. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. So this other disciple mentioned here is most likely John himself. So Peter and the other disciple, John, started for the tomb. Both were running and the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Now, is there some deep theological reason that John mentions here that he outran Peter? I don't know. Verse 5, he, John, bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. So the tomb is empty, almost. It's almost empty. Just the burial clothes are still lying there, but the body is gone. Verse 8, Finally, the disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. And then John explains, They did not understand from the Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. They believed that he was gone, but they didn't understand it yet. So the two men go back and they hide. But Mary, she stays there. And just starts weeping. She's standing there in the garden weeping until this gardener comes up to her. At least that's what she thinks. In verse 15, the gardener asks her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is this you're looking for? Thinking that he was a gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary, and she turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Now, isn't this breathtaking? Jesus, you are the author of life. You have just conquered sin and death. You've literally created it, the crux of history itself. History itself will now be divided in two by what you've done. You have now changed the, the trajectory of history and creation. You've quite literally completed the most important act in the history of the world. How do you want to break this news to the world? Do you want to like have a disembodied hand write it on the wall like you did in Daniel? It's like, no. Do you want to descend upon a mountain like you did in a consuming fire, like in Exodus? And he's like, no. Do you want to peel open the sky and ride in on a great white horse like it says you will someday in Revelation? No. So what's Jesus' plan? He says, well, there's a woman. And we're like, a woman? You know, in the ancient law courts, they wouldn't even allow a woman's testimony to be counted. You want to tell a woman? And he's like, yes, a woman from whom I cast out seven demons. A woman who the world considers worthless, dirty, and unfixable. A woman that nobody else in the world will choose. Jesus will reveal the greatest news in history. Not by a royal decree, but with a first name. Mary. Do you hear that? The news that would forever change the world must first change her world.
the news that must go to all creation must first be personal. That from the beginning, the message of the resurrection has always been and will always be intensely personal. It is more than a debate over forensic evidence, more than a historical question, more than a theological idea. The message is a person, and his name is Jesus. And he's standing there asking, who are you looking for? And when he speaks her name, her world is forever changed, and our world is forever changed. Mary then turns to him, grabs him, clings to him, and doesn't want to let him go, for she loved him much. Story of the Resurrection. So Martin Luther King, that night he was at his kitchen table, and he prayed, Lord, I know you're real, but I am weak and I am so afraid, and I just need you to speak my name. I don't know that I've ever heard you say my name. And he said, then out of the silence, he heard a voice. He heard the voice of the Lord for the first time. He heard Jesus say to him, Martin, you are never alone. Stand up for righteousness, stand up for justice, stand up for truth, and lo, I will be with you even unto the end of the world. And he said, and I'll quote, and I'll tell you, Martin Luther King here, I've seen the lightning flash, I've heard the roll of thunder, I've felt sin breakers dashing trying to conquer my soul, but I heard the voice of Jesus. He promised never to leave me, Never to leave me alone. No, never alone. No, never alone. He promised never to leave me. Never to leave me alone. And I'm going on and believing in him. So in John chapter 10, Jesus says to all of us, the sheep listen to my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I don't know where you're at today in your walk with God. Like maybe all of this sounds crazy to you. Like we're people who talk about hearing voices. I'm so glad you're here if that's where you're at. And maybe you know what it means to hear the voice of Jesus, but you've never trusted that voice. You've never followed that voice. Or maybe you have heard the voice of Jesus, but life has become complex. You've become distracted, and that voice now seems distant and weak. Today, in this text, in the resurrection, we are reminded from the book of Hebrews today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. He knows you by name. He knows everything about you. He knows your fears and your doubts. He knows what's coming after you and what's pulling you apart. He knows what's distracting you. He knows what you've done and what's been done to you. And he loves you. And he rose from the dead to come after you. And he's calling your name. He's promised to never leave you, never leave you, never to leave you alone. But now it's your move. Will you cling to him? Will you believe in him? So, if you feel like he is speaking to you or has spoken to you and you've not yet trusted him or you need to recommit to following his voice, you can do that right now in prayer. I just want to encourage you, 
if that's where your heart is, to pray with me. It goes something like this. Jesus, thank you for coming after me, for loving me, for choosing me. Thank you for forgiving me and for dying for my sins. I believe that you rose from the dead and you are the very son of God. And I trust you when you say that you will never leave me alone. Today, I want to cling to you. I want to follow you. I want to love you more. I want to give my life fully to you so that you can make me more like you. Amen. That is the prayer of every follower of Jesus. And the scriptures declare that if you believe this with your heart, that if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, that you are saved. You are declared to be right with God. You are loved by God, a child of God. You are in a living relationship with our living Savior, and he will never leave you never leave you. And when we open ourselves up to his presence in our lives, we will be transformed. We will be made like him. And then someday he'll come back for us and make us fully resurrected like him. And that is the hope of Easter, a hope that speaks not only to our minds, but to our hearts. Church, happy Easter. Christ is risen indeed. And I hope that you'll join us next week as we pick up on this and we start a series about how to open up our lives to his very presence through prayer. Happy Easter.